Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. What the truth? You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here are your hosts, Rob Dalrymple and Vinny Angelo. Hey, welcome in everyone. We are in podcast number three of the John series. And when I say three, here's the thing, Rob. You know what's better than recording a podcast? Yeah, I know exactly what's better than recording a podcast. Recording it twice? Re-recording it. (laughs) (laughs) So we we recorded tonight's show last Wednesday. No, we did not record last last week. No, hang on. We met last Wednesday (laughs) and we thought we recorded. Yeah. And then you text me like 10 minutes later saying there's no recording. And I'm like, oh yeah, there is. So we're, we're doing it again. So yeah. So hey, yeah. hey praise God. So we as get, you said last week, yeah, yeah. Exactly. we'll just re- reference that. Hey, we we got to go through John one again. And like, is that a bad thing? Like, yeah, really. Yeah, so let's, uh, let's get into John chapter one. What are we doing differently tonight than we did in episodes one and two? So we just really want to focus on the first 18 verses in the gospel of John. As you move into the text of the gospel of John, what you're going to notice is that the story starts in verse 19 with John the Baptist. And that the first 18 verses, what we call a prologue, we've talked about this before, you know, why do people go to the gospel of John as new believers and things of that nature? The reason why we ask that question is because the first 18 verses, it's really deep, it's really rich, but it sets the stage for everything he's going to talk about. So that's what we want to focus on is the first 18 verses. Nice. When we look at the gospel of John, we, it's the one book that we encourage new believers to you know, read it's it. We love it because it's got this really high view of Jesus. Um, how does that maybe taint our understanding or uh, give us a, a pre-understanding that might not always be accurate before we read the gospel? Well, again, I think what's happened here, and I don't know the history of how this has influenced the church, but I know the tradition that you and I were both raised mm-hmm. in was we go to the gospel of John to find out who Jesus was, to prove that he was God so that we can talk with cultic groups or non-Christian mm-hmm. groups that come to your doorstep. And we argue from the gospel of John, especially John 1, 1 or John 8, 58, these great famous verses to prove Jesus is deity. And the idea is that Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't really talk about Jesus as deity, but the gospel of John presents Jesus as, and deity means God, right? Well, that's certainly misreading Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Mm-hmm. And it's also misreading John as well, because John's goal is not so much to prove Jesus is God so much as it is to identify Jesus as the one who is sent by God. Now, certainly he is the one who's sent by God and he is also God. And we're going to see that in the first 18 verses, but it's really focusing more upon, upon the one who sent him than upon Jesus himself. And then ultimately after that, it's not only is he sent by God, but then he sends his disciples as the father sends me. So I send you. So if we look at the gospel of John strictly for this, Jesus is God thesis, we miss the fact that Jesus is God because he's making God known. Mm-hmm. And how it actually points us to the Father. And so we do a disservice there. And then secondly, we miss the fact that he was sent by God, and now he's sending us. And therefore, the Gospel of John has to be read with this missional flavor, which we'll discuss in our next episode. Yeah, and that's just something that you and I have talked about a lot through this series as we've gone through the New Testament. But it's it's this idea that there is every book of the Bible is going to have a a narrative or an idea, an overarching idea that the author is trying to communicate. The authors of the books are not merely trying to drop fortune cookie nuggets of it's not our job to kind of be like national treasure and go in there and figure out these cryptic meanings. That's just how we're kind of trained to read the Bible. We yeah, look at this right. verse means this, and this verse means this. I call it like you know, like Russian roulette or fortune cookie reading it, where you're just trying to prove something where it's like, no, this, this author is actually trying to communicate 
a bigger thing there. And yes, Jesus is divine and like we're in no way minimizing that. It's just the point of John's gospel is to not merely prove the deity of Christ. When we get into the actual text of John, we get more of a story. Like the, the story kind of begins at verse 19, where we actually start learning about John the Baptist and hearing about him. But that's not what's happening in these first 18 verses. You mentioned that it's this prologue, right? So yeah, what's happening yeah. here? Yeah, the key to understanding the Gospel of John really starts with this, what we call the prologue, the first 18 verses. But in order to understand the first 18 verses, we kind of have to know this larger, grand biblical story. So you might be familiar with the fact that John begins with in the beginning, clearly resonating with Genesis, but it's not simply echoing Genesis or repeating Genesis for the sake of saying, oh, I want you to think about a gen the book of Genesis and this is what's going on, but to take the story to the next level. So we have this new creation theme. The distinction of the story is the fact that God desires to dwell in the midst of his people. This is what Eden was about. Now, in Eden, there was a garden, and in that garden was where God dwelt, and Adam and Eve come into that garden presence. And the story down in the biblical story is that presence of God being restored to humanity or, human or his creation, or creation being restored back to his presence. And so now we find in Jesus that this is what's taking place. So it begins with, a with John 1, 1 saying, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. And then if you skip down to verse 14, and the word became flesh. And there you go. Now, what's interesting is the fact that the word word here is so significant. In the beginning was the word. Well, he was with God. He was God. And the word became flesh in verse 14. And that the word word or logos, as it is in the Greek, almost not repeated at all after the first 18 verses. So whatever's going on here uh, is significant. All right, how about if we just start by reading the first three verses? You want to pick that up? Sure. So I'll read from the ESV. Uh, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. So we have this in the beginning, which we already discussed, clear allusion to the book of Genesis, which as we've already noted, is this new creation theme in the gospel of John. It was in the beginning was the word that the logos, he was there in the beginning. And the word was with God, and the word was God. And the distinction that we make there is the fact that the word was God, there's your divine nature, but that the word is not to be identified with God in terms of person. So he's with God means he's not God. And therefore, we want to use the word God here as, in terms of the Father, as a Trinitarian context, mm -hmm, we would. Mm -hmm. So if the word was with the Father, and the word was God. We wouldn't say he was the father because you can't be with the father and be the father. Mm -hmm. So that's the, the distinction we make. There's an equality in nature, but there's a distinction in person. And this leads us to maybe one of the key thoughts in the whole gospel of John is that the words and deeds of Jesus are the words and deeds of God or the words and deeds of the father. And ultimately this is going to climax in verse 18, which we'll get to in just a few minutes. But let's continue on video. Let's go to verses four and five. Okay. In him, the word was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So now we have this language of creation. Of course, Jesus is the creator, which we kind of skipped over in verse 3. Through him, all things come in, came into existence. And if John 1.1 1, 1 is citing Genesis 1.1, 1, 1, then John verses 4 and 5, verses one, chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, is citing Genesis chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. And that is that the word was there at the beginning, and that light 
was the light of men, and that light shines in the darkness. That darkness is what was covering the, the deep of the earth in Genesis chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. And so darkness was over the surface, surface of the deep, and that light then comes into the darkness and brings creation. And that John simply saying, hey, this is Christ doing this work. Well, let's continue, verses 6 through 13, and we'll kind of flush this out more as we, as we proceed. Okay. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but became to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came into his own and his own, his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So next thing we have then is this introduction of John the Baptist. And it may be that some people were saying that John the Baptist was actually the light. We know that in the book of Acts that there's people who know about John the Baptist, but they don't know about Jesus yet. And so they're disciples of John the Baptist. They're going out around the Roman world, but they didn't know that the Jesus part of the story had come in. And so the early Christians witnessed them in Acts chapter 18. So it's possible that some more people were claiming that John the Baptist was indeed the light. So John the apostle starts off by saying, look, John was not the light. Now, Jesus was in the beginning, but John the Baptist came, so that there came a man sent from God. So Jesus, of course, was sent from God, but he was in the beginning, whereas John was not in the beginning, uh, but came about. So John sent to testify and to be a witness to Jesus. He's not Jesus himself, or he's not the light himself, but he's witnessing to Jesus. And then this passage kind of finishes, or this section that, just, that you just read finishes with, the fact that as many as received him in verse 12, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even those who believe in his name. And there's one of your key verses, Vinny, as to why, hey, if you're a new believer, read the gospel of John, or if mm -hmm, you're searching mm -hmm. about Jesus or about Christianity, read the gospel of John, because it has a lot of these statements like the one who believes or mm -hmm. the one who does this, or uh, he gave the right to become children of God. This large language about salvation and conversion fits very much within the evangelical kind of thinking of salvation, conversion, and personal conversion experiences. Of course, Nicodemus' story in chapter 3 fits in that paradigm also. John continues then by saying, he was in the world, and he made the world, yet the world did not know him. And this is probably one of those questions that's out there as well, and that is, as the gospel is spreading around the Roman world, you can see Roman individuals, you know, Gentiles, we might call them, non-Jews, going, why should I believe in this Jesus thing, this messiah of the jewish people thing when he died by crucifixion in other words he died as a capital punishment by romans in itself and the jewish people don't even believe in him and of course the, the gospel stories like tell us well the jewish people did believe in him many of them do but at the same time there's gonna be a large contingency of the jewish people in the gospel of john who simply do not believe in jesus and it's possible that john's telling a story to kind of to respond to this context of in the Roman world of going, why should I believe in this when the Jewish people don't, don't even believe in him? And the answer is, look, he came into the world, he made the world, and he came to his own, but yet his own did not receive him. But as many who did receive him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. And there's a little play on words, by the way, in verse 11. Uh, he came to his own, in Greek, it's actually the neuter form of this word, which means his own place, his own home, uh, his ta idia. He came to his own, his own place. But then hoi idioi, the same word just in the masculine, but as those who were his own people did not receive him. So mm. he came to his own place, Israel, Jerusalem, the, the Jewish people, but those his own people did not receive him. And of course, we know 
the story that a prophet's not welcome in his home country for all, probably the motif that's going on there. Hmm. We're also seeing some themes here that pop up just throughout the rest of the book of John. I mean, you had already talked about how, you know, belief, all believe in his name. Hmm. He get, uh, has given the right to become children of God. Belief is a theme that we see throughout the gospel. You know, he, he is the light, a theme that you see throughout the gospel, yeah. um, you know, coming to save the world. It's like the prologue is introducing these ideas yeah. that we're going to see throughout. Yes, very much so. And let's talk about one of them right now. And that is this theme of believing. If you read the gospel of John carefully, you might want to note that when it says many believed in him, like chapter three, for example, many believed in him, you're thinking, well, is it a genuine belief or not? Mm -hmm. And so you get to chapter six, where Jesus tells us difficult teaching, and you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood, mm -hmm. and you don't have mm -hmm. no life in yourselves. And it says, many then began to fall away from him. Mm -hmm. Many of his own disciples. So disciples and those who believe in him are not always a guarantee that they are what we would call disciples, genuine believers, and those who genuinely believe in them. Be careful when you go through the gospel of John and you see this word believe. If we were to jump into other gospels, like if we were to jump into Mark, I'm thinking of something like Mark four in the parable of the, uh, the sower in the four soils, yeah. where the second and third soils are seeds that seem like they're growing, but they get choked up and they die away. Yeah. This is a theme that you just see throughout you know, the New Testament in general, you have the letters. This is something that Paul writes about, uh, or even John writes about, Jude writes about that there's people who were among us, but they actually left us and they actually weren't really of us. Yeah. And you got to figure we might have discussed this when we did the parable of Mark chapter four a while back. Also, the fact that the disciples are probably going through this um, crisis right after the cross. Okay, wait a minute. We thought he was the Messiah. We thought this was going on. He started saying things about dying, but that doesn't make any sense. He's in a tomb. This doesn't make any sense. What's going on? And everybody's deserting him. Hmm. You've got thousands of people following Jesus so much that he feeds 5,000 at one time. And all of a sudden, now you got a few dozen. Hmm. And even after the resurrection, you got 120 in the upper room. And again, 120 is probably a symbolic number. So, but nonetheless, it's not a large gathering of people. It's not the thousands and thousands of people that were following him before. And again, yeah, it's because oh, I think the problem of the sower provides the paradigm for understanding this, it's because they are not willing to suffer thorns or to suffer mm. stones. Mm -hmm. And yeah, they're going to fall away. Many believe in him because that oh, sounds great. He's healed my mother. And he, he did this and he taught nice things and he fed us. Great meal, by the way, uh, though I would have liked pepperoni, but I guess that hasn't <laughs> become kosher yet. All right. So it's, it's a great problem. story. We're following Jesus. And then he's like, going to die. I don't know if I want to be associated with him right now. I'm out. Hey everyone, thanks again for listening to the podcast. We really appreciate it and hopefully it's blessing you. Hey, do us a favor, if this is something that you are digging, if it's helping you, if it's uh, encouraging you, take a second just to like it, give it a review, give it you know, five stars if you think it's five star worthy, uh, share it with your friends. And we just wanna get this out to more people. Uh, this isn't something that we're in for the bucks, but it's something that we wanna encourage and equip people with. So do that, help us out, and now we'll get back to the podcast. Uh, where are we at? Let's go to verses 14 through 18. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out. This was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he who was before me. And from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. 
the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. And this is why we say, yeah, we're not sure that the Gospel of John might be the best place to go yeah. for a new believer or someone who doesn't understand what's going on, because this is confusing here, especially mm -hmm. verse 18. So if Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 were the key to understanding the first couple of verses of this prologue, then Exodus is probably your key here. And what's happening first off is that John, we know the story, of course, and most readers are expected to kind of be that, that omniscient reader. We know what you're talking about. The word became flesh. In the beginning was the word and what was with God and the word was God. Okay, that's Jesus. We, we kind of know that. But now in verses 14 through 18, this kind of goal is to identify the word with Jesus specifically. And Gary Burge, one of the New Testament scholars who wrote a comment said that John 1, 14, the word became flesh and tabernacle amongst us. He said, that's one of the most important verses in the entire Bible. Hmm. And you can get away with saying that. I remember, by the way, preaching like, this is one of the most important sermons yeah. I've ever said. Yeah. My congregation like, that's like the 20th time you said it. Well, yeah, <laughs> Every Sunday you say it. <laughs> yeah, it's like, it still is. It still is. But it still is. So the word became flesh. Uh, the word uh, was born, uh, not became in the sense that he, he ceased being God. So the, he didn't go from being the word and now he became flesh. Like, no, the word became flesh, but his divine nature remains unchanged. Then it says he tabernacled amongst us. And the different translations here, let me actually bring up some different translations to kind of compare John 1 verse 14. New American Standard says the word dwelt among us. ESV that you read says uh, dwelt among us. Mm -hmm. The Net Bible says took up residence amongst us. The NIV says uh, made his dwelling. Uh, the New Living Translation says made his home. And the New King James says dwelt among us. The New Revised Standard says lived among us. And I think the message, which is a fantastic translation oftentimes, and the message says the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. Which is good. Of course, it's not great for the point that we're going to discuss, but nonetheless, it captures the idea of Christ becoming incarnate. The significance actually is that the word uh, tabernacled is the same language used to refer to God's glory in the tabernacle in the desert of Moses. So the idea of fact is the fact that God's dwelling amongst his people, just like he dwelt amongst the Israelites at the time of Moses. And the key now is Exodus chapter 40, verses 34 and 35. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. This is the language that John 1.14 is resonating with. Not only does the word tabernacle amongst us, but we beheld his glory. Ah, So it's the same word for tabernacle, the tent presence of God. And then John goes on to say, yeah, and we beheld his glory. The key now, though, of course, is present in Christ. And so the we part actually is really significant because in the Old Testament, only Moses beheld his glory. Or mm -hmm. later on, the priest, the high priest beheld his glory. Only one person, one time a year, was able to behold his gl glory. And now John says, and we beheld his glory. A similar passage happens in 1 John chapter 1. Mm -hmm. uh, very similar opening. 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. I don't know if you want to read that also. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the father and with the son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things to you so that our joy may be complete. So again, notice that the plurality, 
we have touched him, we've seen him, we've beheld him. Uh, Hebrews chapter one, verses one and two says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets and many portions in many ways, in these last days, he's spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, to whom also he made the world. So in the previous time, he spoke to the fathers, to the prophets in many portions and many ways. So it was limited and it was a variety of different ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, to whom also he made the world. And then look at verse three. He's the radiance of his glory in the exact representation of his nature. Mm -hmm. The same idea, of course, is what John's trying to get at in John chapter one, mm -hmm. verse 14. We beheld his glory. It's the tabernacling presence of God, the Old Testament tabernacle. Yeah. The one Exodus passage we read, that is one example of that. There are numerous yeah. examples of that through the Torah, the first yeah. five books of Moses, where it, especially in Exodus and in Deuteronomy, we're proclaiming this. So a Jewish person hearing yeah. yes. John 1, while there's you know theories about how John might be using Greek philosophy and that sort of right. thing here with, with the Logos concept, if you're a Jewish person and you get to the end of this and you're, you're hearing this concept of him, Jesus tabernacling or God tabernacling amongst us in Jesus. How do you not go back to Torah school and everything from your childhood, every time you've heard the Passover story your whole life and not just, you're just reading that story now through the lens of Jesus. Yeah. And especially, I think we need to really pick up on the word glory here. Mm -hmm. We beheld his glory that this is the glory of God that dwelt in the temple. So mm -hmm. let's look at Psalm 26 verse eight. Psalm 26, verse 8 says, Oh Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Hmm. Ah, this is glory language of God dwelling in his tabernacle. Similar idea in Psalm 29, verse 9. The voice of the Lord makes the deer to calve and strips the forest bare. And in his temple, everything says glory. Ah, there you go. Hmm. Now, the problem here, though, becomes this, Vinny. I think for myself, at least in my own context, I would assume, I think a lot of Christians, when they think of glory, they think of something like, oh, this is what we just praise God with and we worship. It's this worship language. And it has a much more, I almost, I almost want to say mundane meaning that then takes on a supernatural sense to it. That to interpret the word glory is to interpret the whole gospel. And by the way, in chapter 17, in the high priestly prayer, Jesus is going to say, Father, Give me my glory back, mm -hmm. right? Glorify the glory me with that the I glory have with which you. I had yeah. with you. Yeah, before the world began, mm -hmm. I, I want it back. So the word glory in, in Hebrew is kavod, and it has basic meaning of, well, the word itself literally means something heavy or weighty. Uh, and of course, but it's weighty in the sense of importance. You might say, oh, that was a heavy meaning that we just walked out of when we found out that the, the company's going underwater or people are going to be let go. That was a heavy or weighty meaning. Uh, meaning. In that sense that the word kavod kind of fits the context, but its basic meaning is wealth or power or importance. So in other words, it's weightiness in terms of prestige. So people that were powerful, people that were wealthy, people that were important had more kavod than others did. Then it comes a secondary to mean, you know, honor, prestige, and reputation. And of course, the more honor you have, the more prestige you have, the more kavod you have, the more reputation, the higher you, you are. And then ultimately that comes down in your visible splendor. Now remember in the Roman world, the clothes you wear tells you what your social status is. Mm -hmm. So if you're a member of the, the equestrian order in Rome, mm -hmm. you get to wear a certain color toga with a stripe on it. All these things convey honor, convey your glory, convey your reputation. So your clothes and your jewelry are a sign of your honor, your prestige, and your reputation. 
Now in Greek, the word is doxa. And the word doxa comes from the root from dakao, which means to suppose or to think or to believe. And its common meaning then is like opinion. But again, it's an opinion in the sense of like, what's the opinion of others about you in the sense of, again, what's your reputation and what's your honor? So it comes to the New Testament then to mean your honor, your reputation and your visible splendor. So yeah, we think of glory and we apply it to God and we think, oh, God's glory is magnificent. But I think we trivialize this by spiritualizing it, if you know what I mean, mm -hmm. by making the spiritual thing of like, oh, holy, 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 and fail to recognize the fact that glory or kavod is saying God is of, of immense power, wealth, and prestige, importance, and visible splendor. So in the New Testament, then it's this honor, reputation, and visible splendor we beheld as glory. We, we saw the honor, the reputation, the splendor of God like no one else has ever done before. Hmm. And I think the key then to really explain this then would be to look at the Exodus chapter 33 and chapter 34 story. So let's go to Exodus 33. I'm going to read the beginning of this passage. We're not going to be able to read the whole passage, but if you have time, if you're listening on, online, Exodus 33, if you're not listening online, then you're not listening to this at all. Yeah. So it doesn't really matter. But you get the idea. If you're listening to this, if you're not listening, don't worry about it. Just disregard everything I'm about to say. But if you are listening, you might want to read Exodus 33 and Exodus 34, kind of the, both those two chapters. But starting in Exodus 33, verse 7, Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, a good distance from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. And it came about that whenever Moses went out to the tent, that all the people would arise and stand, each at the entrance of, the, of his tent, and gaze after Moses as he entered the tent. Whenever Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. When all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would arise and worship each at the entrance of his tent. And the Lord would speak with Moses face to face, which doesn't mean literally face to face, but it's intimately, right? This intimacy, mm -hmm. just as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses returned to the camp, his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man would not depart from the tent. The passage continues to go on to God says, my presence will go with you and I'll give you rest. And Moses is like, if your presence doesn't go with us, then don't, don't, don't even lead us from here. Don't, don't take us to the promised land. We only go to the promised land if your presence kind of goes with us. So then Moses says in verse 18, I pray, Lord, show me your glory. God's like, look. And he said, I will make myself. And he said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I'll be gracious. And I'll show compassion to whom I'll show compassion. But he said, you can't see my face for no one can see me and live. And the Lord said, well, all right, here you go. There's going to be a place by me and you shall stand there on the rock. And I'll come about that while my glory is passing by, I'll put you in the cleft of the rock back in a cave and I'll cover you with my hand until I pass by. Then I'll take my hand away and you shall see my back, but my face will not be seen chapter 34. Skip down to verse 29 now, Exodus chapter 34. And it says, it came about when Moses was coming down from Mount Sinai, and the two tables of the testimony were in Moses' hand as he was coming down from the mountain, that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he was speaking with God. So when Aaron, all the sons of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. They called to the, then Moses called to them, and Aaron, all the rulers of the congregation returned, and Moses spoke to them. Afterward, all the sons of Israel came near and he commanded them to do everything that the Lord had spoken to him on Mount Sinai. Moses finished speaking with them 
he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he'd take the veil off until he came out. Whenever he came out and spoke to the sons of Israel, what he had commanded, sons of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face shone. So Moses would replace the veil over his face until he went in to speak with him. This is your context. You can't see my face and live. So I'm going to stick you in the back of this cave a little bit. I'm going to cover my, your face with my hand, and you're, you're going to see the, a glimpse. And now John begins this gospel by saying, we beheld his glory. The, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is incredible. This is unbelievable. So Richard Baucom has done a little study on the word on glory in the Old Testament. And he noted that in the Old Testament, glory represents the visible manifestation of God. But the visible manifestation of God was always hidden. It was, it was fire by night and a cloud by day. And Moses has to hide in the back of a cave. But then as you go through the Old Testament story, you know that God's glory also departs with the Israelites in the book of Ezekiel. And he leaves and goes off to Babylon. So now even God's glory no longer dwells there. But as the prophets then from Ezekiel and Isaiah, as they begin to talk about the glory of God coming back, now they talk about the glory of God coming back and there's no cloud. Ah, oh, it's going to be this unveiled glory. So Bacham says it this way. He says, from the first appearance of the glory of the Lord in the wilderness, after the Exodus, until Ezekiel sees it depart from the temple before its destruction by the Babylonians, the glory of the Lord is conceived as a fiery radiance that can be seen, but only in a veiled form hidden within a cloud. Only when the glory returns to the new temple in Ezekiel's vision and lights at the new Jerusalem with glory visible to all people will the glory appear without the cloud. Thus, in Israel's history, God's revealed only in hiddenness. What's revealed is both the holy otherness of the God who is a consuming fire and the gracious presence of God in the midst of his people dwelling among them. But then, as Malcolm goes on to note, but Jesus is the unveiled glory of God manifesting amongst us. So Isaiah picks up on the same theme as well. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 5 says, Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all flesh will see it together. So again, when you realize that the glory of God is what dwelt in the tabernacle, and only the high priest was allowed in there, then something's going on. It's going to be a transformation of the presence and the glorious presence of God. All right. So Balcom concludes then by saying, you know, the, the glory is the radiance of the character of God, the grace and truth about which Moses heard, but which the disciples of Jesus have seen in his human person and life. Hmm. So the idea of God's glory is a big deal. As you've said, he limits his glory to only certain people and, you know, it could kill a guy, literally. Yeah. So if, if no one could see God and live, then how come when Jesus is popping up, yeah, how come he's not Medusa every Medusa-ing everyone? I'm trying to make him into a verb. <laughs> yeah. Richard Balcom comments on this also. He says that the reason why people didn't drop dead when, when they saw Jesus, even though they're beholding the glory of God, is because God manifested himself in something that's not divine, namely human. That might sound wrong to some people. What do you mean Jesus is not divine? No, Jesus is human. He is the divine son of God in the human flesh of Jesus. So what God chose to manifest himself in was humanity. And as a result, you're not seeing the divine nature fully. Of course, the glory of God is manifesting itself in the person of Jesus. And you're seeing this, but not in the sense of his divine nature. Hmm. Okay. So we had noted the concept of Jesus being the word, the logos. That doesn't appear. We don't see that again in the gospel of John, but for the glory of the glory of God in Jesus, 
Uh, is that something that we, you know, continues on? Yeah, John's going to use this word glory a lot. And the key in the Gospel of John is that the glory of Jesus is supremely tied with his death and exaltation. And so we think of the glory of God maybe being manifested in the resurrection. Oh, yeah, that's when the, his glory was manifested. No, it's supremely tied to his, Jesus' death and resurrection. What's happening then in this verse to kind of sum it up is the Old Testament glory of God is now associated with the manifestation in Jesus. And as Jesus continues to minister, the glory of God is going to be manifested throughout Jesus' ministry. So in John chapter 2, the first sign that Jesus does in Cana, it says this is the beginning of a signs that Jesus did in Cana of Galilee, and it manifested his glory, mm-hmm. and his disciples believed in him. So again, see how the, the word glory has more of a mundane sense, a practical sense. A, it's manifesting itself in the everydayness of what Jesus is doing, even though the everydayness of Jesus is actually transcending what the normal is. It's still this pragmaticness to it, if that's a, an appropriate term. Well, and, and even even right there at the wedding at Cana, he's yeah. not he didn't turn the water into wine, and all of a sudden he starts glowing with a halo. Right, like that's not what's happening. The idea is that the sign that he produced is a miracle, but it's pointing to something else, and that is what is demonstrating his glory. Yeah, exactly, exactly. That's right. Yeah. So now, what's also interesting is the fact that the word glory is used for others, and there's and it's used negatively as well. For example, hmm. it's used to contrast the glory of Jesus with the glory of his opponents, you might say, with, with others. For example, in John 5.41, the others accept glory from humans. And they accept glory in 5.44 from, an, from another. Chapter 7, verse 18, they seek their own glory. And in chapter 8.54, they, they glorify themselves. Chapter 12, verse 43, they love the glory of humans. All, of course, contrasting with Jesus. Now, remember, if glory has the sense of like this visible splendor, this manifestation of your honor, your reputation, then they're, they're relishing in the fact that I'm a person of glory, of honor, of prestige. I wear a certain color toga. And she's like, look, you're seeking glory from one another. So Jesus then is the one who seeks glory from God alone, John 5, 44. He seeks glory from the one who sent him in John 7, verse 18. And he loves the glory of God in John 12, verse 43. And again, this was important that we started off with, and that is the glory of Jesus or John's use of glory and application to Jesus is not just so you go, oh, look who Jesus is. He's the divine son of God. But the glory of Jesus was the manifested so that you know who it is who sent him. So I might as well go ahead and quote Richard Balcom again, uh, again, uh, because he's one of the most preeminent scholars on the gospel of John as well. And we're going to have a great scholar coming up in a few weeks. I believe we have Marianne May Thompson's going to come on our podcast uh, in a few weeks. It'll be fun to talk about some of these, these things with her also. But Balcom says, The difference between their seeking glory and Jesus is this. He says, whereas the Jewish leaders are concerned only with their own reputation, Jesus seeks to promote not himself, but God. We just, again, can't underemphasize the significance that he's not seeking glory for himself, going, oh, look how great he was, but look how great my father is. That's this image of God mentality, right? Humanity is to image God, not so that everyone can say, look how great we are, but look how great our God is. Hmm. Just kind of uh, to pull back again, to look at the themes of a book, uh, rather than looking at individual verses, John seems to use light and darkness as a theme where there's that dualism of one is good, one is bad. Uh, he, He does that throughout the gospel. Does this kind of become a theme then of there's the glory of God or the false glory of not God or the antagonist of God? I think so. I really think that you need, and again, 
uh, one of the things that we'll probably talk about with Marianne May Thompson would be, hey, why does John's gospel not use kingdom language? Mm-hmm. I mean, it kind of does like a couple of times in John chapter three, but ultimately the kingdom of God is the most common topic of Jesus in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And yet you hardly ever see it coming up in the gospel of John. Mm-hmm. But I think you still have that framework there. And what's happening in the kingdom of God versus the kingdoms of the world is you go back to the garden. Who's going to decide right and wrong? Who's going to decide good and bad? Who makes the rules? And humanity decides we'll make the rules for ourselves. And the kingdoms of the world say, we use power, we use military might, mm-hmm. we use step on the little guy, all, of course, for the sake of those who are in power and at the expense of everybody else. Jesus comes along and says, well, God is the one who makes the decision of right and wrong. Or as the proverb says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Mm-hmm. And so when we submit to Christ's kingdom or the kingdom of God, we're saying you are the one who knows all things and knows what right and wrong is and what good and bad is in any given situation. And we acknowledge you. The distinction, however, as we hopefully flesh this out in our Matthew, Mark, and Luke series, is the fact that in the kingdom of God and Christ's kingdom, we do power differently. Mm-hmm. And that is we do power through love. Mm-hmm. And that power through love is exemplified by laying down your life for the sake of the other, which of course, this is the gospel of John language now, right? Mm-hmm. Greater love is no one that he lays down his life for his friends. Mm-hmm. And so this is how we manifest power or how we manifest love or how we manifest glory. So I think it is this contrasting of kingdoms, light, darkness, good, bad. When Jesus referred or what John refers to Jesus as being full of uh, grace and truth. What do we mean, mean by that? Well, we're still stuck in this Moses thing then, of course, right? So if we understand John 1, 14 in light of Exodus and Moses story, I think it'll make sense. He's most likely a, uh, alluding to the phrase loving kindness and truth, uh, hesed, which is a significant word in the, mm-hmm. in, the, in the Old Testament. And it means a lot more than loving kindness. It's just not a good way to really capture it all yeah. in one English word or or a hyphenated English word in the sense of loving kindness. And ultimately what it represents is God's faithfulness to his covenant people and his promises to his covenant. So again, let's go back to Exodus 34, verses five through seven. It says, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with with him as he called upon the name of the Lord. Verse six, then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of their fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. So it's this idea of God being compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, loving kindness for thousands, by the way. Oh, you know, God's horrible. How can he punish the children and grandchildren? It's a comparative, guys. And the comparative is that God's loving kindness is for the thousands of generations. And his iniquity is on the children and grandchildren, third and fourth generations. Not to say that that's absolutely a literal thing. I think this is the context then of the glory of Jesus is this covenant faithfulness of God, whose loving kindness and truthfulness and God's faithfulness to his people. And of course, this picks up then the theme of truth, as we kind of alluded to in the last comment that you just made there. A truth, of course, ultimately is manifested in Jesus himself. Jesus is the truth. And we'll, we'll go back to John 14, verse 6 in just a minute when we get down to verse 18 in our study here. Uh, and of course, the Holy Spirit is truth also. So that's why he says in verse 17, the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus. Hmm. Let's go to verse 18 then. Yeah. So Unless you have something else. No, no, no let, let's go through because verse 18, this becomes 
a little confusing and we, yeah. we noted it when we read it the first time. I don't know if you want me to read it again. You mean the first time you mean last week? Yeah, the, yeah. <laughs> when we did this <laughs> that, episode? That time like, too. Oh, oh no, earlier today. Yeah, yeah. Tonight. Okay, yeah. It says no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the father's side. He has made him known. <laughs> yeah, it's very confusing, isn't it? So let's actually go to um, see what the, the message does with this. John 1 verse 18. And the message, no one has ever seen God, not so much as a glimpse. This one-of-a-kind God expression, who's at the very heart of the Father, he has made him plain as day. And again, if you understand this in the Trinitarian sense, that makes sense. But I think the problem is actually still there, even in the, in the mm -hmm. message translation. So let me simplify it by kind of putting in parentheses what I think John's saying. So no one's ever seen God, and enter in parentheses, the Father. So the beginning of, the, of this verse seems to be talking about the Father. No one's ever seen the Father. But God, the one and only, and then in parentheses, the Son. It begins by saying, no one's ever seen God. And then the second part says, but God, the one and only. That's Jesus, the Son. Mm -hmm. And it says, the one who is in the bosom of the Father. Again, talking about Jesus. He's in the bosom of the Father. And the fact that the word Father is inserted here tells us that we're probably right in inserting mm -hmm. the word Father, at least in parentheses, in the first clause of chapter 1, verse 18. So say it again, no one's ever seen God, the Father, but God, the one and only, who's you know, the only begotten son of John 3, 16, that's Jesus. The, the one who's in the bosom of the Father, that's Jesus at the right hand of the Father. The phrase, by the way, the bosom of the Father means if you're reclining at a banquet and you're in the seat of honor, you lean back, you're leaning on your left-hand side. So when you lean back to your left, but their right, you're leaning back into their bosom because they're all laying on their left side. So you lean back into their bosom. So to lean back in the bosom of the host means you're in the seat of honor. Mm -hmm. So he's in the bosom of the father. And then I finished by saying he, which would be Jesus, has made him, which would be the father, known. No one's ever seen the father. Yeah, I was going to say, let, let, let me yeah, go ahead. even read it. Just, I mean, I'm going to paraphrase it in a completely Trinitarian kind of way. Okay, then. sure. So no one has ever seen God the father, but the the unique God the Son who is at God the Father's side, God the Son has made God the Father known. Yeah, or yeah, or he's, <laughs> yeah. Made, he's made the Father yeah. known. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He's made the Father known. So this becomes, if you're following the, the logic of the prologue now, the word was with God, the word was in the beginning, created all things were made by him. That's not John. You know, John came to bear witness to him, but it's not John. And then the word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us. And now we're realizing, okay, this word, and by the way, there's probably a little bit of Proverbs 8 in here that we didn't kind mm -hmm. of cover. So word became flesh and dwelt among us. This word then that created all things is the glorious presence of God throughout the Old Testament that was veiled during the time of Moses that's now unveiled in the person of Jesus and his humanity. And John says, and therefore is my climax of this, and you can say John 1.18 is kind of the thesis statement of the gospel, mm -hmm. is that Jesus has made the Father known, which this is Colossians 1 language. Mm -hmm. He's the image of the invisible God. Ah, Adam and Eve were supposed to do this. Adam and Eve were not supposed to be the incarnate presence of the eternal son of God, but Adam and Eve were supposed to bear God's image, to mm -hmm. make God known and to imitate God throughout the creation. And now Jesus has come along and done that. Now, if this is the climax, of the, if this is the thesis statement in the gospel of John, then we might say the climax is in John chapter 14, verses 9. And of course, I alluded to it earlier. Let's go back to John chapter 14. 
Jesus is saying, look, I'm going away in the beginning of the chapter, John 14, verses 1, 2, and 3. Verse 4, he says, and you know the way where I'm going? And Thomas is like, Lord, we don't even know where you're going. How do we know the way? And Jesus says, I'm the way. I'm the truth, and I'm the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. If you'd known me, you would have known my Father also. There you go. John 1, 18. He's made the Father known. If you'd known me, verse 7 says, John 14, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you know him, and you've seen him. And Philip's like, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. And Jesus said to him, verse 9, have I been so long with you, and yet you've not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? There you go. Climax of the gospel. Just to jump into maybe something else that people might struggle with without going overly theological, though, what Jesus is not saying is that he is the Father. Correct. Which in the history of the church, this is actually one of the, it's an yeah. early heresy yeah. known as modalism or Sabellianism, which, which says that God, there's one God is trying to preserve the monotheism of God. I said, there is only one God. And then he just has different modes or masks that he might right. wear, where sometimes the God, God is the father. And sometimes he is the, the son. And sometimes he is the spirit. And, and so it denies the individual persons of the Godhead. Yeah. And I, I think, and I, we don't want to get off too far into a mm -hmm. Trinitarian yeah. theological yeah. conversation as much, but affirming the Trinity is itself. Absolutely. I think we do an injustice, however, by making too great of a distinction between the persons of the Trinity. Mm -hmm. The Father, Son, Holy Spirit are three indis distinct individual persons, and they are. But yet there's a tremendous unity to them. I mean, John 17, I pray that they may be one even as we are one. Mm -hmm. So I think, again, the point then is that Jesus is not only God, as we often stress in the Gospel of John, his presentation is the, the divine nature of Jesus. But he's God making known the Father, and God is the one who is sent by the Father. And then, as we said at the opening, he's also the, fa he's also the one who then, as the Father sent him, he's sending us. Mm -hmm. yeah, and, and once again, that's looking at it in terms of the missional theme of the book, not merely just trying to prove theological points. Exactly. Mm -hmm. The Gospel of John is intensely missional. And as we'll discuss in the next couple of podcasts, it also has a strong emphasis on the person of the Holy Spirit. And one thing, because I'm just going to bring in some thoughts of people who might be listening to this being uncomfortable because they, they might be hearing yeah. you are speaking right now thinking, wait, are, do these guys deny the Trinity? Are they right. denying the deity of Christ? This harkens me back to a, a conversation I had, gosh, must have been my second semester of seminary where I was, in, I was having a dinner with one of my professors. It was a biblical studies course. It was someone who they're trained in biblical studies, not theology. And that's their wheelhouse. They want to know how to interpret the text. Not, it's about. not me. It's not me, by the way. You know, no, it wasn't you. It, it, it sounds like else. you're describing me, but no, not, no, yeah, yeah, it was someone else. And so I was asking the wrong questions because it, it came up about this sort of, of a very similar topic in terms of who is Jesus. And I was asking questions of uh, the, the fancy word was ontology that I was like, you know, who is Jesus at his core? Yeah, yeah. And so I was asking these questions to this professor about the nature of Jesus ontologically, and and he said biblical scholars don't like to speak in terms of ontology. And at the time I didn't, I didn't understand what he was talking about. And I, I was like, okay, what's wrong with this guy? It wasn't until later that I just realized, okay, a biblical scholar is just going to be looking at things in a different ways than a theologian might. And, and, you're, and so it's similar to what, if, if I'm going to go just to use an example, a, a surgeon versus a um, you know, a, a physical therapist, they're going to have different ways of going about looking at things. <laughs> and so when we're hanging out in your world, 
you're largely going to be looking at things from a biblical study standpoint. And so you're, you're just not, I don't want to say not interested in the theological, it's just that's not, those aren't the questions you're asking. That's not your wheelhouse. That's not what you're trained in. And so the, Hey, those are good theological questions to ask, but you do them <laughs> on another podcast. Yeah. yeah. The way I always look at it when we kind of, these kind of conversations, Vinny is the conversations are fine. Mm-hmm. That's great. But at the end of the day, is it going to make a difference in how I carry out mm-hmm. the mission of Christ? Mm-hmm. Is it going to make a difference on how I manifest his love to one another? Is it going to make a difference in my personal transformation in the likeness and image and glory of Christ? Mm-hmm. And I saw too many conversations as a young man going up in the church where we're debating Calvinism and Arminianism. We're debating, well, at the time I was a dispensationalist, so we're, we're debating pre-trib, mid-trib, or post-trib. It's like, in the meantime, the world's falling apart. People are dying all around us. And we're arguing about these doctrinal distinctions. Getting the answer right. Yeah, getting the answer mm-hmm. right with no concern about how it actually manifests in the way I treat other people. And so, yeah, the conversation is important. So to kind of calm everyone's concerns about down. Yeah, we're total Trinitarians. No, no problem at all. Historic Trinitarians. The point I made earlier was that we have to be careful about making such a radical distinction as if the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are so radically distinct that we don't recognize the oneness to the, to the nature mm-hmm, of God mm-hmm. and the fact that they're, they're working together to serve and glorify and manifest one another, ultimately the Father then. And we miss at the same time, the missional call of the gospel. So the theological conversation might be important to say, hey, are we talking about the same person, the same mm-hmm, being here? Mm-hmm. Because the reality is, if you're not talking about the same God, then all other conversations need to go on hold. Yeah. But once we, okay, look, we're kind of on the same page here as who he is, then the question becomes, okay, great. Let's kind of get on with the fact that he's called us to a mission now. That mission is to make him known. And to make him known, A, is unified and unity, and B, it's to love one another. And as we love one another, we, we make him known because God is love. Mm-hmm. So, Absolutely. Yeah. So okay. I share his sentiments. All right. Well, hey, assuming that this is actually recording now, we finished this episode. It says recording. It says recording. (laughs) So maybe we'll do it a third time. Cool. Hope everyone's enjoying it. See you guys next week. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Please subscribe to and like our podcast. You can follow Rob's blog at determinedtruth.com or purchase his books on amazon.com. See you next time.